Fifteen years ago this month, the Cato Institute launched the Cato Daily Podcast, and to mark the occasion, we're hoping to give you a token of our appreciation and ask a small favor. Visit cato.org slash cdp15 to get a pair of vinyl Cato Daily Podcast stickers in the mail and give one of them to a friend who might enjoy timely libertarian perspectives on issues of the day. That website, again, is cato.org slash cdp15. And now more than ever, thank you for listening. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 24th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Wildfires continue to ravage big chunks of the western United States, but managing wildfires looks a little bit more like not managing wildfires than you might expect. Holly Fretwell and Jonathan Wood of the Property and Environment Research Center spoke with me about how markets present a massive opportunity to manage federal lands in a way that imposes fewer costs on the people who live near them. We spoke last month. Wildfires as far as the eastern half of the United States is concerned, is a thing that the western half of the United States has to deal with uh, for the most part. That is, wildfires are much more manageable uh, in the eastern half of the United States. So give us a sense of the scale of the problem and who is most affected by the problem of wildfires. Well, the scale of the problem is is huge. And a large reason that we see the difference between the East and the West is that in the West, we have a lot more public land. And our public lands are managed very differently than our private lands. Uh, our national forests cover 193 million acres. And a good portion of those, uh, about 80 million acres, are at risk of wildfire and in need of some sort of restoration. And we need the ability to get into those forests to do that type of management where private landowners have uh, the incentive and the motivation to get in there and make sure that their lands are fairly well cared for. Our public lands are managed very differently and we have to go through a political process and we have lots of hurdles and barriers that our federal agencies and our personnel must go through in order to actually get some sort of restoration and management done on the landscapes. And this goes back a hundred years. We've had a hundred years of fire suppression in many of our forests. Some of those forests, uh, that's had a huge impact on them, and it's changed the condition class of those forests and made them much more susceptible to large catastrophic wildfires. Other areas of that forest, that's a typical pattern for them with wildfires. Some forests burn every 25, um, 5 to 25 years, and some forests burn every 100 to 300 years. So uh, the forests that burn every 100 to 300 years probably haven't been impacted that much in their condition class. Those that burn on a regular basis um, have changed considerably. And as a result, we need to get in there and remove some of those fuels to reduce that risk of wildfire. All right. Uh, Jonathan, what is the role of markets in managing wildfire risk? Well, there's a huge opportunity for private interests, for states to get involved in trying to manage national forests. Frankly, the Forest Service faces a huge backlog in need of restoration. Holly mentioned there are 80 million acres um, that are in, in need of some serious restoration. And the Forest Service just doesn't have the manpower or the money to, to do that work in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, right now, on the current pace, it would take decades to clear that backlog during which you'd have more areas becoming in need of restoration and new fire risks arising. Um, but thankfully, because our national forests provide so much value to local communities, to businesses, to states, and to others, there is an incentive for the private sector to come in and help. And in a recent report with the Property Environment Research Center, Holly and I talk about some of those innovative public-private partnerships where businesses and communities have said, we have money, we have the, the time and resources we'd like to help uh, restore our local forests. And the Forest Service has been able to speed up some of that restoration and get work done that otherwise couldn't have been done. Specifically, what is the 
essential difference here between this public management and uh, how uh, markets might serve forests and the people who live near them and the wildlife who live in them better? One of the problems with the markets working in our national forest lands are some of the regulations and restrictions that our uh, forest managers uh, have to face up to. And that is they have to go through a whole process of planning in order to get some action actually done. And as a result of that planning and the long-term uh, schedules that it takes to get some of this stuff done, a, a lot of the, the private investors are unwilling to actually invest in some of the infrastructure that's necessary. So to, to allow our markets to function well, we need to see a couple of things happen here. One, we want to make sure that we're pulling some valuable materials out of the forest um, and that we have some ecosystem services that are of value that, that are um, the result of some of that restoration that we're, that we're actually trying to do. When we look at Forests in, in Washington state, there's lots of value in those forests. There's lots of timber products that can come out so that we can actually see some of this restoration and we can see it actually pay for itself. And there's infrastructure and mills and processing plants um, that exist there that can actually take that material and add value to it. So they're willing to pay for uh, the material as they re remove it from the forest. Other regions, the value of that timber is much lesser. Maybe there's no value in the additional timber. And so it's much more difficult to actually allow those marketplaces to, to function, particularly when we don't have the processing plants and the investment and in infrastructure that actually exists there. And we need to motivate somebody to invest in that. And when they are trying to work with the Forest Service, the Forest Service, again, has these restrictions on the length of contract and their um, ability to actually cost share with the private sector, which makes it less certain that the, the private sector is actually going to get a return on their investment. So we see less investment in those areas. I think when most people think about wildfires, they think of well, we just got to put it out and we should do whatever we can to put out the fire. And I've learned from from you, Holly, in particular, that that's really not how forests work. Like forests have their own, it's, it, you know, an ecosystem. We need to, it's, it's, a, it's a risk that ought to be managed and forests need to be managed and just putting out the fire, which was uh, the longstanding policy of the, the federal government is just not it's not workable. Fire is a really important part of the forest. And again, by suppressing fire for so long, we've increased the fuels in many of these forest regions, making them at much greater risk to really large fires that, that get way out of control. We call them mega fires or catastrophic fires. But, you know, I heard something earlier today that Jim Cummins has, has written about. And let's think about uh, our forest and our own individual health care. We, if we treated our healthcare the same way we treat our forests, we would all live much less long. We'd have much shorter lives. Because when we look at our forests, we go in there and we just try to suppress the fire at the end of the day, but we're not doing those day-to-day -day management needs. We're not doing the, those healthcare checks. We're not doing the, the simple surgeries. We're not doing the prescriptions to just, you know, to the antibiotics to, or antibiotics to, you know, to help us get through certain types of issues that are fairly simple issues that we can actually get through, but that do cost money and do take time for us to deal with. When we look at our, our forests, or especially our national forests, we're really just going after the big catastrophe. You know, the forest has the cancer, the forest has the um, the wildfire, it's, it's burning now and now we have to put it out. But we're not taking those, those maintenance steps that we really need in order to ensure that we have um, a more natural, resilient forest um, so that we're not seeing these huge fires take place. What of the local costs? I know, I mean, even prescribed burning, uh, something that is, I think, better known in the eastern half of the United States is not something that, you know, 
there are externalities. There are communities that live near and enjoy uh, access to the forests, and they don't want their skies filled with smoke even a couple of days a year. That's exactly right. Burning on our national forests, particularly the megafires that Holly has talked about, are extremely indestructive. Um, they produce massive amount of smoke that pollutes the air and lowers air quality for hundreds of miles away. Uh, they cause erosion that uh, destroys local watersheds. They destroy habitat for, for valued wildlife and, of course, destroy areas where people enjoy recreating. And that's one of the reasons why there is some incentive for private groups, local communities, and states to contribute to the effort because they want to protect those values. But in order to do that, to really capitalize on that opportunity, we have to tackle some of the obstacles that have been keeping the Forest Service from getting projects from the idea stage to being ready to actually do the on-the-ground forest restoration work. Um, and until we see those reforms, you will naturally be limited in the amount of work that you can get done. Jonathan, what is the interaction between the Clean Air Act and what Holly here might prescribe in terms of managing wildfire risk better? Well, so the problem is the Clean Air Act, like a lot of environmental regulation, treats pollution differently depending on its source. So the massive destruction from mega wildfires is uh, basically baked in. It's treated as a, nat a natural emergency situation and doesn't count against any of the pollution limits. But prescribed burns do. Uh, so a lot of activity that could on net reduce pollution is nonetheless penalized by the Clean Air Act because states, when regulating to ensure they don't exceed federal air pollution limits, have to account for that. Uh, the, recently, the Environmental Protection Agency has tried to get at this problem by issuing guidance saying we're willing to work with states. Um, but the problem with doing it that way is you're talking about guidance. It's non-binding. It can be changed any time. It's asking a lot for states to invest in prescribed burn programs when you're not giving them the certainty uh, that would come from real meaningful reform to address this imbalance. That we shouldn't care that much about where the air pollution is coming from. If, if prescribed burn is on net reducing air pollution, we should be rewarding it, not penalizing it. And then, Holly, you want to mention one of the examples? Yeah, and let's let's even talk a little bit about um, sort of the state of our national forest more. I, I think there's there's um, it's really interesting that in our national forest, more trees are dying than are growing. That's not true across our forest lands across the United States. But our national forests have net mortality. That is, our forests are actually dying. Part of the reason for that is that we've reduced harvest our national forest. Back in 1988 was the peak of, of national forest harvest. We may have been harvesting too much in some areas, maybe not enough in other areas, uh, but nonetheless, we've reduced that harvest from something like 12 billion board feet down to about 3 billion board feet, and we've just allowed those forests to grow. So instead of seeing some sort of natural fire and other natural disasters take those forests and, and do what they would have done 100 years ago, we've reduced the harvest and we've suppressed the fire. So what we're seeing is this buildup of fuel in our national forest lands, uh, and that's what's causing some of these megafires in some of our forest areas. We can actually get in there and do something to get our forest to be growing again, to have an increase in that growth and decrease that mortality. And that takes forest restoration. That means we need to get in there. We need to do some prescribed burn. Uh, before we can do prescribed burn, we want to actually get in there and remove some of those fuels so that the prescribed burn doesn't get out of control. And what we find as we remove those fuels is in some forest areas that the fuels that we're removing actually have some value, some timber value. Um, in other areas, they don't. And in some areas, they have value because we have 
the investment um, in the infrastructure and the milling capacity. In some ar areas, we don't have that infrastructure and milling capacity and processing capacity, but the timber value still may have, um, the, the timber that needs to be removed may still have some value. We just don't have a market for it right now. So in those cases, we want to actually see some encouragement of infrastructure investment so that we can get more people out there um, processing this material and adding that value to it. One of, one of the projects that we looked at is done by, being done by Blue Forest Conservation uh, in the Tahoe National Forest. This is the Forest Resilience Bond, and they have been extremely innovative in using different types of financing to help move the forest project forward. So they, they looked at the forest that they knew that needed some serious restoration in order to protect the watershed, uh, to protect the community from wildfire, to protect the wildlife habitat and the amenities this forest was providing for people. And then they reached out to some of those individuals that were benefiting from that. They reached out to the Yuba Water Utility that provides the water for the municipality and said, we want to get in here and actually restore this forest so that we can ensure that we have clean water and quality water for the future and that we don't burn our community down. And the Yuba Water Facility was, was interested in working with them. They reached out to other businesses that, that are interested in the forest. They reached out um, to investors that want to help ensure that we have healthy forest and resilient forest. And they created what's called the Forest Resilience Bond. What they needed was some upfront mon money, some, some seed money to actually get into the forest and do some of this restoration work. And that is the, the bond that's helping pay for that. And over time, uh, the water utility and other beneficiaries are paying back that bond. So it's a really innovative approach to ensure that we're actually getting some of this work done on the ground. And those that are benefiting from it are helping pay the way for that forest restoration. So if we want to do more forest restoration, we want to tackle this problem. We think there are three basic things we should be doing. First, we should be encouraging collaboration rather than conflict. Right now, too much money and too much time that we don't have goes to bureaucracy, red tape, and litigation. And we should be working together to tackle this problem. Second, we need to give the Forest Service the flexibility to actually enter into these partnerships. Right now, it might be able to enter an agreement for a year or two, but it would actually take 10 or 20 to get the sort of investment you need. And finally, we need to open markets, uh, make the material we're taking out of the forest more valuable by investing in new opportunities to use it, as well as allowing for more um, uh, selling the materials overseas. Holly Fretwell and Jonathan Wood are authors of Fix America's Forests, Reforms to Restore National Forests and Tackle the Wildfire Crisis for the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana. This month marks the 15th anniversary of the Cato Daily Podcast. In appreciation to our listeners, we have a small gift for you. Visit cato.org slash cdp15 to learn more. <laughs>